had the opportunity to kind of reflect on how a, a college instructor uh, or professor may feel. I, I've, it, during my time in college, I've always been on the receiving end of the first day of class. I've never taught in college, but the, the first day of class is, is a, usually a painful, for the student, it's pretty painful because it's, <clears throat> there's this obligatory sequence or series of policies and rules that have to be kind of delivered to the class. And so, I, you know, if I recollect, it felt always like about, like about as though an hour and a half of the two or three hour class was spent talking about fire exits, where the bathrooms are, uh, what, the, what the certain rules are, what's the documentation, what's the format, you know, uh, when you're going to write, what's the help policy, what's the honor policy, um, absentee, grading policy, all of those policies, they have to be put up there because students can be unbelievably student-ish, right? And we have to account for all the buts, you know, but, 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 but. You have to kind of deal with that because they're going to try to get around, you know, the fact that they don't have a number two pencil or whatever it is. They're going to try to, to deal with that. And, and after the policies... There's usually a time of discussion about the syllabus, which, if, if I remember well, is about the only part of the class I ever cared about, because um, you want to know when the big reports do and how long it has to be. That's all you really care about is, is how many books do I have to read and how long does my paper have to be. And so you kind of endure the whole syllabus conversation, and then you shut off for the remainder of the class, because you found out the only fact you need to know, which is i got to read three books and write a 30-page paper. And then the, but the professor continues to teach. He has about another hour remaining, and he has to do something, which I feel like I need to write all my teachers an apology. Uh, because he, what he's trying to do with the remainder of his first class, oftentimes, is cast a vision or a direction or be a guide to kind of show where the class is going to be going over the next semester. The big ideas, the themes, his thesis, if he's going to try to like demonstrate or con- convince you of something, what are, what are the kind of the underwriting, the impetus behind the way the class is structured? And to the student, you don't care. You know the 30-page paper, read two books. You're done. You want to leave. But for the teacher, the teacher feels like this is really, really important. And he's saying something so important at an inopportune time. And I feel like I'm doing that today. I have to give you some overhead. I have to talk about policy. And then I have to talk to you about where we're going. But it's not nearly as flashy as maybe, maybe you might want. But I do think it's of great importance even though it may come at an inopportune time. So, with that said, uh, here's some of the policies. The exits are there. We have so few bathrooms in our building that if you find one, tell me. Uh, don't cheat. Be nice. Uh, that's all of our policies. Here's the syllabus. Okay, you ready? This is the syllabus. We are going to cover 22 chapters in 11 weeks. Do the math. 
Um, and there will be Sundays like today where we cover four or eight verses, which means that there's going to be Sundays where we're doing three or four or five chapters on a given day. So there will be days where the expectation of the teacher is that you do a lot of work outside the class if you want to keep up and pass this course. Uh, like, for example, next Sunday, we're going to do uh, the entire remainder of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. We're going to talk about all seven letters to the seven churches. We will not read the letters to the seven churches in the service. I'm hoping that some of you, spurred on by a desire to know God's word better, will take the chance this week. Look, seven days. You've got seven days this week, and there's seven churches. You see that? Oh, it's great. And what I'm going to do is this. Each day, starting on Monday, I'm going to work to email out a devotion on the given church. So you just follow an order. And so you'll get a devotion, some of my devotional thoughts on that church to kind of help guide you and encourage you to continue on. You'll get two on Saturday because I don't want to write on Sunday morning. Um, but hopefully you'll read it. And then when we get together, we can move at maybe at a faster clip because we are moving. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing is... This is a time of preaching, not only teaching. And I say that because if we were teaching the book of Revelation, it would sound different. When you preach, you're trying to, you're trying to exhort the word into someone's life so that their life is different. So it's not about information as much as about taking information and making it transformational. In a, in, a, in a moment, in a short period of time, you're trying to actually move someone closer to Jesus Christ. And that's different than simply teaching. It's not about data. It's not about inf- it's just knowing things. It's about becoming something new. And so because of that, if you approach this study, this 11-week study, from an informational perspective, you will feel that at times we're going too deep on something and at times we're going too shallow on something. The environment of learning will feel uneven to you. I'm saying it's because I'm trying to create an even environment of kind of exhortation and allowing the spirit to work. And so there's some things that for the sake of a theme, I'm following that very consistently because I think there's a broad way that God wants to speak. So it will feel uneven. That said, somewhere in the next two months, we're going to have some night here at the church. We'll call it Revelation Night or something like that. I don't know when, where... We'll invite everybody who wants to come out, who wants simply just to talk about the book of Revelation. The thing that I haven't been talking about that, that you think I should be talking about and you want to know what I think or why I don't think the way I need to think and you want to fix me, come on that day and fix me. And I'll be here like at 6 o'clock at night and I'll go home at midnight. And however long you want to just hang out and talk and have question and answer, not just between me, but allow those in the room. There's multiple authorities, what I would consider, on different viewpoints in the church that may not even be consistent with mine, but are yet helpful and kind of guiding us through, it'd be a great time. So I want you to know that's out there, and it's thoughtful of the fact that this is not a teaching time only. That's number two. Here's number three. This is a study of Revelation. This is not an end times study. There's a difference. There will never at any point in this sermon series be a timeline from the book of Daniel on the slides. Or I'm not going to go through painstakingly through Ezekiel or any of these things. I am concerned about the book of Revelation. That being said, no book of the Bible is isolated from the others. And so this 
this book will be taught in light of the rest of Scripture and certainly in light of the other apocalyptic teachings. Certainly it's not going to go against Daniel or against Ezekiel or against Thessalonians or any of those things. I'm just saying our focus is within the bounds of Revelation 1 and Revelation 22. That's our primary concern. That was three. Here's four. I am not an end times expert, nor is this my hobby. That is not why I'm teaching it. You are not the victims of my pet project. That's not how this is happening. What, the way this act, actually happened, quite the opposite. It was about two years ago, roundabout, where I was, uh, uh, there's a few people I meet with uh, weekly, or back then at least, we would meet weekly and study the Word, and it came to light that I finally confessed to them that I was really nervous if someone asked me about the end times because I had no clue, you know, what the eighth horn on the twelfth wing would have meant if it looked like Sardix and I don't know, whatever. I didn't know how to even deal with that stuff. And so we said, the three of us said, well, let's, let's spend time with it. So we spent a year studying the book of Revelation together and just learning and growing in the Lord together. And uh, when I came out of that, I, I felt very blessed. I felt blessed and, and I, I felt through the whole process like this is something the church would be blessed by. And so that being said, I am a learning teacher on this thing, which means I think I'm going to get the really big things right, and on the little things, I'm going to go, eh, whatever. Uh, I may do that from time to time. I reserve the right. Um, the other reason I'm choosing to teach it now is I have plenty of time to get another career if this goes poorly. <laughs> all right. Number five, there's all different kinds of students in this room. Some of you are not sure why you're here. You're like looking on your register card or your schedule going, I'm in the wrong class. Hopefully you're not. Some of you are here because of friends or because of her. You're faking interest. <laughs> Some of you have to be here on Sunday to get credit to graduate. That's why you're here. You're like, i got to be here. So whatever they're teaching, I'm teaching. To those three categories you're going to feel very, very comfortable during these next 11 weeks because you're just going to assume everything I say is right. And, uh, and you don't care enough to kind of read another book and find out that there's a lot of people that disagree with me. Then there is another crowd, and this crowd is those of you who this is your favorite subject in the whole wide world. And you and I will not get along. We are going to butt heads. And so I want to share with you how to deal with me over the next 11 weeks. Email me or call me. Bring me to lunch. <laughs> somewhere nice. Pay for it. Fatten me up. And then you can yell at me all you want. Okay? I'll like be in my little post-lunch stupor. I'll tell you you're right. And I'll, we'll go our separate ways. You'll feel refreshed like you've said your piece. I'll preach what I'm convicted is the case. But that's how you deal with it, all right? Um, there you go. All right, that's the overhead. That's the overhead. Now I need to go through that quest of, of pointing our compass needle in the right direction. So if you would, uh, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, which is page 848. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided you, that is.
Now, these two ideas I'm going to share this morning are certainly here in the text, I think, and this is why I'm saying that big ideas, is they may not feel to you right now like they matter, but I am eventually going to say things in this series that are resting on these pillars. And, and they, so they are going to matter. So, so that's why I'm encouraging you maybe to trust, trust the teacher in this case to say he's trying to put first things first on the very first day, and it is of, of primary importance. Let me read the first three verses, if you would. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The first line of the, of the book is, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means revelation, or an unveiling. Really, that's kind of the idea, is an unveiling. If you were a sculptor, and you had kind of sculptured a vase, and you had put a sheet over it, you know, to show somebody, and you took the sheet off, that kind of encapsulates visibly what the word tries to mean. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now this, I need to say this briefly, and we'll come back to this in subsequent weeks, but revelation, so revelation is the revealing or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about this morning. Revelation also happens to fit into a genre of writing, it fits generally into a genre of writing called apocalyptic literature. It's apocalyptic literature is, is really shaped by the kind of language and, some, and symbols and numbers and, and the themes of light and dark and good and evil and the future crashing into the present and all these sorts of things. It was a genre that was being written about during the time when Revelation was authored. It's, it, it has apocalyptic themes. It is not apocalyptic because the word apocalypsis is in the first sentence. They're separate ideas happens to be apocalyptic, but it's saying this is the revealing or, or the unveiling or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the two happen to be true, but one doesn't necessitate the other. That's not why the book is considered apocalyptic. But what does this idea of unveiling mean? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the, actually, the most troubling word, I think, in that sentence is the smallest one. It's the word of. There's been pages written in great disagreement at times on what the significance of that word is. There's certainly is one, one point is true, which is it is in some ways the revelation or unveiling brought to us by Jesus Christ. That's what verse 1 continues to say. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, look, which God gave him to show his servant. And then Jesus, he made it known by sending his angel to John. So there is an idea that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that it is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Like someone might say, this is a letter of my mother. This is a letter from my mother. The same 
idea is true here. And it is a truth that is not simply true here in the first verse, but it's a truth that kind of lives through the book, that Jesus guides the revelation through the book. In chapter 4, Jesus is going to lean over to John and he's going to say, come up here. Well, and that is, that's an active effort of delivering the unveiling to John. And there's going to become a moment where the, the, the unveiling of what's about to happen comes to a screeching halt in heaven. That John is given the impression that he's going to see what's going to take place. He gets to heaven. The scroll, an angel holds a scroll out and says, this is it. Who can read it? And nobody can read it at all. It's one of the most tender moments in the whole book. John says, I wept and I wept. And then Jesus goes, give it to me. I can read it. And so there is this, there is this beautiful sense that, that everything that's coming to us is coming to us only because of the power of Jesus Christ. That he's made a decision that there's things we should know and he's making sure that we receive them. And in that sense, it is certainly of Jesus but there's another different kind of of, right? It's also, the question is, is it also a revelation of Jesus in the sense that it is about Jesus? And I, would, I contend that it is both. It is both from Jesus and it is about Jesus. In other words, there is a veil, there is a sheet that is over something that Jesus is going to pull off. Jesus is under the sheet. He's pulling his own sheet off is what's happening. But this entire book is not simply coming to us from Jesus, but it's informing us more deeply and more fully who Jesus is, how he relates to the triune Godhead, and how it's all going to consummate at the end of time. But, but Jesus is a central and critical character through that. And every time something happens in the book that Jesus brings to us, or that is brought to us by his authority and his power, we learn about him in the receiving of it. So when you read this week about the churches, certainly the revelation that's coming to us from Jesus Christ, right? I mean, he's actually saying it to the churches. When you read them, each letter begins with an unveiling of himself. This is from he who, and he begins to define himself with the double-edged sword, or he who is the great amen, or he who, he just begins to kind of lay out his personhood in front of these things, and then he closes the letter off with a further example or description or unveiling of his power by saying, he who has an ear to hear, I will give the power to. And so you see the person of Jesus on the front of the letter, and on the back of the letter you see the power of Jesus being expressed and displayed. Because the story, the revelation, the unveiling, has as much to do with who we're receiving it from, as it does how or who it is about. Let me say it a different way. The story of Christ that, that we share here, um, you know, from Bethlehem to Calvary, that Jesus Christ is in a very real way the physical manifestation of God in our tangible world. He is the historical expression of God in our lives. That's, that's, a, that's a very significant role that Jesus plays. That's a significant triune role that Jesus plays 
and de- de- describing God to us. Is he, is the, he is the version of God. He is the God that we can place our hands on or imagine in our eyes or have a conversation with or identify with or grieve with or listen to as he shares. And, and, and people have questioned him and they've touched him and they've received blessings from him and they've received cursings from him. He's among us. He's about us. That, that is the Jesus that we've received. And, and Revelation is there to say, that story is not yet over. That's what Revelation is going to try to express. That the story, the history of Jesus is not yet fully history. There's something that's still to come, some role he has, some part he has to play. There's a greater fullness to the gospel that you and I can, can allow to slide or, or fade away from us on regular occasion that John, through the Revelation, is saying, no, there's a greater fullness of Jesus Christ that we need to remember and we need to recall, namely the fact that he's coming again. Look at this, look at this. In the very first verse, look at verse 7. It's almost as though John breaks out in song. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. We need to know and trust this story. This is an essential part of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've seen, we've seen, when you read the Gospels, or you read the letters, or you read the Acts, and they talk about these things, we've seen the Jesus in the manger, and we've seen the Jesus on the road, and the Jesus in the temple courts, we've seen the Jesus on the cross, and we've seen the Jesus at the empty tomb, and we've seen the Jesus at the ascension. We have not yet seen the Jesus standing on the throne of God in heaven, with all authority given to him, and with everyone in heaven, a multitude too vast to count, bowing and worshiping at him day and night. We haven't yet seen that. When we see Jesus, we've seen him on a donkey riding into a village with a message of peace and a heart full of grief that they would not see the grace he offers, turn and repent. That's the Jesus we've seen. We have not yet seen the Jesus on a white horse riding in on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. When mercy is done and justice and righteousness prevail. We have not seen that Jesus yet. Revelation says that Jesus is here. You need to see him. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ both from him and about him. There's a blessing given in verse 3. It says this, blessed are those who read the word, and then it says, and then who hear it. This is actually a beautiful kind of trilogy here. They read the word, they hear it, and they take it to heart. Wouldn't we be, if we could only be that consistent? To read, to hear, and then to take it to heart. And oftentimes, when people start to teach Revelation, they promise this right up front in order to keep people coming to their study. They say, they say, if you, if you, over these next 12 weeks, you are going to be blessed because of what's being promised here, which is true. But then what often happens is that the quest for blessing quickly descends into a, 
a quest for clues about certain questions. That's what it turns into, is an investigation to determine when is he coming back? Or when are we getting raptured? Or who is the Antichrist? Or what is the mark of the beast? Or when is there a one world government? Or is it the communists? Or is it Wall Street? Or is it Iraq? Or is it we end up enmeshed in all of these things, hoping and trusting that the path to blessing is to somehow look through these details and, and plow deep into these truths and that somehow that's going to come out. I'm here to say the revelation of Jesus Christ blesses us by knowing God better, not by knowing when. You will not be satisfied with this 11 weeks if you've come to know when. I pray you will be satisfied with God, that you will know Him better at the end of 11 weeks because we're reading this to know God better and not to know when or how or what. And you can take me to lunch. Okay. That is the first very important theme that is going to carry us down these next 11 weeks. Here's the second, and it's in the fourth verse. John. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This isn't simply a revelation of Jesus. It's also a revelation that's given to seven churches. Seven churches in Asia, or Asia Minor, in Turkey, they seem to be seven churches that John somehow seems to have some form of oversight on. At the very least, John can refer to himself as his first name. There's some degree of familiarity there that he can write to these seven churches in Turkey and say, this is the revelation I've received and it's for you. In fact, Revelation 22 reminds us of this. It says to the churches, this is a faithful testimony. Now, that, that we need to keep this in mind because there will be times when we are tempted to interpret or translate the book of Revelation into our own lives without remembering that it was actually written to seven gatherings of God's people around the time of 80 AD, 78 AD, 90 AD, or whatever that time is, whatever that fixture is, those people were the original recipients of this letter, and we're not allowed to forget that. They would not, God, John and Jesus would not have written them a letter where they would have said, well, what is all this? Why would they have kept it? The people who put their physical hands on a handwritten letter from John had to have received it in a way that they said, this is faithful and true. This is a witness from the Lord himself. And so we, we are kind of confined in our interpretation to keep in mind that there were seven very real churches that were reading this letter and interpreting it and that there's a level of truth in it that pertains to them and that in some ways handcuffs our freedom on what we want to do with the text. And this is no different. 
we treat Revelation different, but it is no different than the book of Corinthians or First Corinthians or Thessalonians, right? Those were letters to cities, and when anyone's going to study those things, the first thing you do is you try to learn what you can about the city and then confine your interpretation to something that remains in context with that city at that time. That's what we're doing. That's what we need to do here is that they have a vote in the way we understand the text. But there's something else going on here, and it's this. There's the word seven to the seven churches. And in apocalyptic literature, one thing you never ever do by accident is use the word seven. You just don't do it. Seven is never by accident. Apocalyptic literature uses numbers to express meaning. And seven has a, a, a deeply profound it may be a most profound meaning in this kind of apocalyptic literature. It is a symbol of fullness, of allness, of totality. So when you, when you look at a creature in Revelation that has seven eyes, the response of the church is not supposed to be, <laughs> The response of the church is supposed to be, this creature is all-seeing. That's the expression, is the author and the image is trying to convey meaning through vision of what, what's going on there. And so the text is saying, this creature has, is omniscient around the world. Likewise, if you see something that has seven horns, it's not a yucky thing. It's saying that this thing has all power. It has the fullness of power. It's totally powerful. It's omnipotent is the idea that's trying to be conveyed through the imagery. This, if you have a sevenfold spirit, which we've already had this morning, look at verse 4, and to the seven spirits, your NIV might even say, or sevenfold spirit, the expression there is that the spirit isn't in one place or another place, but rather that the spirit is in all places. It is omnipresent. If I were a pirate and I said to you, I've sailed the seven seas. You would not, hopefully you would not say to me, well, which four did you not sail? <laughs> I'm trying to tell you I'm really salty, and I've been all over the place. I've been everywhere. That's what the pirate's saying, is I've, I've sailed the seas. That's what he's saying when he says, I've sailed the seven seas. Just as when, a, when Revelation says seven, it's saying total, whole, all which means that there is a sense, there is a very true level that this letter is to the seven churches, meaning to the global, full, total church of Jesus Christ, to all Christians everywhere, to any, in any time, who have called themselves bearers of the name of Jesus, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it is a revelation that's been given to the church. And there is a significance here. Immediately, it may not seem why these things matter, but, but if we step back for a second, we can, we, we can see them. When the church is in a time of persecution... What sustains its hope? It's the return of Christ and the fullness of hope. 
when you look at people who have been oppressed, what you immediately find in texts is that they become far more apocalyptic simply by the way the reliance of their faith becomes on Jesus Christ. You look at at songs written by slaves, and those are the songs that are, one day we will not be like this anymore. A day is coming when Jesus will be here, and he's going to swing low, and he's going to chariot me up. Right? You look at at Thessalonians, a church that was oppressed and poor and in dire straits, and that is the letter where Paul begins to talk about the end of time. Is to those people who are in deep need and dire desire to know, has the, has the kingdom failed? Has the gospel failed? Is the gospel not good enough? To those people and to the church is in those situations, it is essentially important to know the fullness of Jesus Christ. He's coming again on the clouds. He's going to judge the quick and the dead. He is triumphant. All things will be beneath his feet. And he holds an iron scepter in his hand. Those are unavoidable truths. That's a more complete portion of our gospel. And churches that forget that are churches that fail to sacrifice. Churches that are not guided by the idea that Jesus Christ is coming as a judge, as a righteous judge over all the things we've done, both good and bad, and that he's coming and that he has fiery eyes of circumspection that are going to look deep into the hearts of men and deep into the lives of the churches. The churches that do not know that are either neither compelled nor encouraged nor emboldened to preach the gospel fearlessly, but rather they, they are reluctant and they fold under pressure, and they don't deal with persecution well, and they are susceptible to compromise because they've forgotten their coming Christ. Which makes the revelation of Jesus Christ just as important right now as it has ever been. Because every church across the globe is at some place of persecution or temptation for compromise. We're all, in, we're all somewhere here dependent upon the notion that one day Jesus will make everything right. When I look before me here at the Lord's Supper, it's, it's interesting how this perspective shapes even the way we approach the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you don't need to turn there, I'll just share it with you. This is the chapter from which we, we in this church share our liturgy about the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave his disciples, so on and so forth, down to the cup where he shares the cup. And then it says this, it says this right afterwards, it says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. This is the job of the church. The job of the church is to proclaim the work of Jesus Christ until he returns, which means we have the cross of Jesus Christ in mind, while at the same time we have the return of Jesus Christ in mind. That's what gives us the courage to do this. That when Jesus Christ says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, it's very hard as a Christian to do that if you do not truly believe and keep in mind that Jesus is coming again, that he's victorious, he's on his throne, and everything is already won. This morning, as we 
approach his body and his blood, I pray and I hope that you would endeavor to know Jesus more fully. Be encouraged and bold in the way you live out the gospel in your life.